Cooper, you're glowing. Oh, thank you. Just fresh on a off a trip of from Minnesota. Not too fresh. Yeah, it, not too fresh. It was, it was the Fourth of July. Oh, so you spent the Fourth in Minnesota. It's been a while. Has Since been a while. the old Fourth, yeah. It's it's. I mean, it's the nineteenth as this airs out. Is it really? Yeah, it's it's been fifteen days. Goodness gracious me! Two weeks. It's almost August. Day. Summer goes by fast. Gosh, the summer is almost behind us. Well, Coop, talk to me about Minnesota. Yeah. So Zach, last week, yes, there was a little slip about my life. Right. And luckily, we kept the name out of it. Yeah, we if probably will continue. About, I don't know. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. keep it anonymous. Right, right, right. It was just lunch. It was lunch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, Zach, I'm glad you asked yeah. about Minnesota. Yeah, Minnesota. Um, because I went with said girl because her family lives there. You just went to meet the it's family. Just Minnesota. You just went it's to the just, family it's farm. Just, it's, it's just Minnesota. It's like they live on. Ooh, is it? I'll say it. I'll give some flavor for the fans if you can do your research. They live on Christmas Lake. Wow. On Christmas Drive. No. Moved in Christmas Eve, Zach. That is a Hallmark movie. <laughs> is her father, uh, like, from one of those movies? Gosh, I forgot his name. Uh, from the Christmas Vacation? Uh, who's the guy that, that I don't know. Mark, Mark Grawl, Grawlberg? What's up? Mark Wahlberg? No, there's a Grawl something. Griswold. Yeah. Clark Griswold. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's that our was, guy. That was, that was not even close. But, us <laughs> but it together, got me there. Yeah, it got you there. That's anyway, talk, talk to me about the lakes. Talk to me yeah, about Minnesota. Yeah, so we went to Minnesota. Yep. And drove on the boat. <laughs> Did you go tubing? We went no tubing. No tubing? No tubing, but we went on the boat. Tied <laughs> the rope to the boat. Gosh, that Did is you good. meet any Winnebago's? Winnebago's? What's that again? I don't remember. We talked about it a few weeks ago. I think I had to do with somebody up there. Uh... Yeah. Keep going. I'll look it up. I don't think I met any one of Eagles, but <laughs> it's just a good word to say. Guys, I flew to Minnesota. Good for you. I'm glad you didn't walk this time. It would have been a long walk, yeah. but I flew on an airline never flown before. That was a mistake. <laughs> and it's called Sun Country. Also a mistake. Yeah, sounds like a just, sounds like a small grocery store for my hometown. I didn't actually pay for my flight, uh, so I'm so grateful. And I'm not knocking the person that paid for my flight. Not a mistake, because I'm assuming it was the family. Yeah, it was her family. <laughs> and here's the thing: she like the second we got there, uh, to my the girlfriend's airport. mom. Yeah, yeah. Like when they picked us up, yep. she was like, "I'm so sorry." Like it was just like hundreds of dollars cheaper to fly. And it's like. I'm easily flying Sun Country when it saves me money. Of course. I'm a cheap guy. Zach. Is it one? Well, is it one of those like six seater prop? No, no, no. It's like it was like a full like probably seven thirty seven. We've never heard of this airline. Yeah, Sun it's Country. literally a Minnesota owned airline. Oh, okay. Like it's based out of Minnesota. Nice Minnesota. Makes yeah Minnesota. Yeah. Makes yeah, sense yeah, yeah, now, yeah. right? Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Get the boat. Yeah, in the tube. Okay. Had a rope, the boat. The so, tube. anyways, I'm with my girlfriend. Yes. We are walking through DFW airport. A couple people stop me because they hear me talking to her. And they're like, are you that guy from the podcast? <laughs> I could hear your voice all the way in the other terminal. Yeah. If you've been riding with us for a long time, you know I have a loud voice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. No, no one stopped me. That's ridiculous. <laughs> but we were going and I was getting some looks. Yeah, I'm And sure. I was like, you know. I'm sure. No, I'm just kidding. That didn't happen. But we were going to our little sun country thing. Plane. And there's just this mysterious 20-minute window where it's like the plane should have boarded. We're all just sitting outside the thing. You just know it's maintenance. What there's, just no, there's no information shared. Yeah. Lack of like, clarity. Lack just, of yeah. clarity. Leaders eliminate confusion. To con- leads to confusion. And yeah, and, and lack of clarity leads to confusion. So, gosh, excuse me. I just belched. <laughs> gosh. 
smelling professional. That's why no one came and stopped me in the airport. That's right. Um, goodness gracious. But uh, we, so like after these 20 minutes of mysteriousness, we just all kind of get on the plane. They just start boarding as normal and you're like, okay. Right. Yeah, it was just nothing. Um, they were probably just having lunch. It's just lunch. <laughs> okay, anyways, we get on the plane and we're sitting on the plane. They do the hell like, like seatbelt thing. Oh, I hate that. And yeah, it's just like, I'm glad to know how to put on my seatbelt. Yeah. Side note, also, if a plane crashed, we would all die. Not always. No, no, you don't no, know no, that. No. Even if we survived, like, if it was, like, a water landing or whatever, like, no one would know that their their seat is in flotation. Like, yeah, because everyone no, has their AirPods in. Exactly. No one listens. And no one so, reads like, it's the safety breath. instructions. Yeah. I don't care how safe you are. If you're in the exit row, you're going to kill everyone. Yeah. <laughs> you don't actually – unless you could do, like, a trial run. But I'm so grateful that they ask if you're willing and able. <laughs> yeah. It's like – literally, bro, one time I was sitting in the exit row and they go, are you willing and able to open this in case of emergency? like, yes. He goes, thank you, sir. We need you. <laughs> thank you for your you. service to like, your country. It's like, oh my god! So I was like, I think I need to switch. <laughs> yeah. Keep no, but anyways, so I'm on the Sun Country Godforsaken plane, <laughs> and I'm sitting next to my girlfriend, of course. Yes. Seats next to each other, of course. Kind of romantic. Gee. Not right, not right. <laughs> and. It was perfect. I was in the middle seat. Not ideal. However, I had a vantage point to my, you know how, like, the road to in front to the right, I could just see his phone perfectly as he's texting. <laughs> so it was just kind of, like, the best. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. like, I'm not going to be texting, but I'm, like, watching his phone. Right. Find out this man has got to pee bad. Literally, we sit down. <laughs> he goes, if we don't make it to 30,000 feet ASAP, I'm going to pee my pants. He literally said that to his friends that were on the plane with him. I love that. <laughs> yeah. So I was just like, ah, it's good to know. Like, like he didn't know I was with him emotionally. But you were. Like, I was, I was emotionally invested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyways, we go through all the safety stuff, and we're sitting there, and we're sitting there, and mm. we're sitting there, and mm. about 30 minutes goes by. And finally, the pilot's like, hey, this is your captain's brief. I don't know why. How do they always sound like that? Yeah, It's like, it's like a part of the requirement to be able to fly. Yeah. This is your captain's They do like speaking. blind auditions. Right. It's right. like, yeah, he sounds like a pilot. Right. And and he's like, just so you know, we're having a little bit of trouble. There's some storms. Whatever. Like, I'm like, all right. But what he doesn't mention is that this plane is hot. So hot. <laughs> like, oh my. So we're in DFW. It's, it's like a – it's – uh, we were supposed to take off at like seven. I mean, you're sitting in a can of sardines. That's Literally, seven thirty-seven, full pack brim. So it's like our. I think our takeoff time was like seven fifty. Mm. We left at like ten twenty. No. Yeah. Is this PM? PM, bro. Ooh. So we're dude, we're just baking, yeah. sauna style. <laughs> so I'm literally sitting there with my hands like holding my head as I'm just like kind of like elbows on my knees. Dripping sweat off my face onto the floor. Oh, just nowhere to go. And good, like, th- good thing your uh, your neighbor has sweated out his pee by now. Well, no, no, he was my neighbor. He was the front right. <laughs> front right, front but, right. But bro, it's funny because I kept checking in. He's like, and now he's complaining about being hot. And he has to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so it was amazing. But I mean, girlfriend, shout out. She was like, we were like kind of fanning each other with the like nice the whatever, safety the instructions. Safety guy. You should yeah, have read. So came, yeah, in, yeah. came in clutch. Yeah, but. I mean, it was just absolutely horrendous. Like, I I mean, you know how you wear pants on the plane? Yeah. Brutally bad mistake. Yeah. My girlfriend was in sweatpants. Well, because once you hit 30,000, it's freezing. Yeah, of course. But we just were on we're not 30,000. You're at zero. But eventually, like, literally an hour and a half, we're sitting in the sauna. At, like, uh, probably like an hour in, my man literally, seatbelt sign's still on. He just literally, he just literally goes road. He just, <laughs> you just hear a dramatic... 
unclick. He just stands up and he just walks with purpose. Sir, please yeah, sit literally, down. Literally, just like he walks with purpose in the bathroom. Yeah, and I'm just yeah. like, all no right, stop, man. It's just Liam Neeson walking. Literally, yeah. but guys, I'll have to say, don't fly Sun Country. Yeah. Because their air conditioning doesn't work until they're in the air, but it's already cold in the air. So I don't really know what the investment was there. Gosh, we've we've flown on a lot of different airlines. We've yeah. flown American. We've flown Southwest. We've flown the prop plane to Branson. The, the uh, humdinger. The humdinger. Yeah, I, feel like, I think we've it. talked about that before. Yeah, maybe a but, little bit. It's kind of like you, but, you feel like you're basically flying the plane. Yeah, you're flapping the wings. Yeah. But, Coop, what is your advice to people? What would you say? Money for the flights? You get cheaper flights? No, or okay, do you so want the yeah. service? So here's the thing is I thought about it as I'm on that plane dripping sweat. I'm like, look, one thing is I didn't have to drive 18 hours or whatever ridiculous thing yeah. it was. Yeah. That's horrendous. And I didn't pay for my own flight. So I'm just, I'm, I'm sounding so like entitled right now, but yeah. it's really just kind of for the humor effect. Of course. For all of you listening, because it's, it's so much. It was just a trip. It was just a trip. <laughs> and it's, it's just, it's way more funny to just it, feel my suffering with me when I'm being around. Cooper's so, like, a tough guy. I'm a tough guy. I was very sad. Yeah. I was, I was a broken man on that plane. <laughs> I don't, no lie. I was broken to my core. However, I was super grateful to just get to go to Minnesota. Once I was there, the weather was insanity. Amazing. Like mm. 85 mm. and like 20% humidity. Literally people there are apologizing for how humid it is. Wow. I'm like, you don't get it. You don't know humid. Bro, I live in this this the Texas heat, man. <laughs> where it's like 97, you look at the fields like, oh, it's 130. Humidity's like 100%. You're just swimming. And it's it's death out here, folks. Minnesota's great in the summer. I'll never go there in the winter. Maybe it will in Welcome to the Next Generation Leader Podcast, where we believe great leaders are listeners, especially during their youth. Good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes, but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them. I'm your host, Zach Funderburg, here with my co-host, Cooper McCullough. From Minnesota. Minnesota. Fresh back, not as sweaty this time. That's right. Not, go not as hard back. in the I mean, paint. I literally, I like, you know how you pull the back of your shirt up kind of as high as it'll go so you can get some airflow? Right. I was in full desperation mode. Also, I might go to Minnesota in the winter. I, If we continue to date, that's, that's probably going to happen. Yeah. So I just want to go back on record and say I will happily go and visit Minnesota in the winter and wear some jackets, I guess. Yeah, of course. Because she doesn't really... Girlfriend doesn't really listen to the podcast that much. That's all right. So My it's wife like doesn't fine, know. but I just in case she hears it, she's supportive. Speaking of listening to the podcast, Coop, as everyone who is listening now is so faithful. We have a great episode for you. Gosh, I love great episodes, Zach. This is Miss Evelyn Lynn. You remember a few weeks ago when we talked to a man named Doctor Ben Carson? <laughs> Do I ever? How could you forget? Of course not. This this uh, this lady worked for Doctor Doctor Carson in the uh, as when he was Secretary of Housing and Urban yeah. Development. She also worked for. Uh, I mean, the Department of Homeland Security a few years before, but now she is working in the private sector with Dr. Carson in his think tank that he started Just called... The Robin to his Batman, if you will. If you will. I will. Thank you. Yeah. The American Cornerstone Institute. And we talked a lot today about poverty and the pathway out of poverty, because it seems like there's a lot of issues in the world, and some people go at them with just straight facts. And then others go at them with just emotion. Mm. So what we talked about a lot is how do we how do we bridge the gap between those two? How do we come together and say, hey, there are real problems in the world, that statistics, and that there are real issues that we can fix them with. But at the same time, we're dealing with human beings. These human beings have problems, and how do we get to the point where we can find the solutions? And we're talking about poverty. We're talking about what can leaders do to help our neighbor, to, to be stewards of what the Lord has given us, whether it's in our business, whether it's in our talents, whether it's with financial resources. How can we service those 
to help the people around us because that's what great leaders do. They take initiative for the benefit of others. So we want to learn how we can practically do that through stewardship today. It was a fascinating conversation just from someone who's been there, has walked the streets, and knows what needs to get done. So I'm excited to share with you. She's educated. She's very educated. And her resume, we talked about it in here. She sent it to me. I had it printed out in front of me, and it was just so extensive I couldn't (laughs) read it. Just 19 pages. You're just like your printer's running out of ink. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. She is a fascinating lady, and I'm so excited to share this with you. So here she is. Coop, Miss Evelyn Lynn. Well, Evelyn, thank you so much for being with me today. And let me just ask you some questions about your vast array of experiences and getting to learn from you uh, today. So first, start by introducing yourself, kind of who are you? How'd you get to where you are today? Great. Th- thanks, Zach, first of all, for having me. I'm, I'm so appreciative for the request. I'm excited to talk to you today. And um, yeah, so my background, I, you know, I'll give you the, the short story, but I was um, born and raised in Chicago. Actually, my family lived in public housing uh, when we first, uh, my family, my dad just first immigrated to the United States, um, but ended up growing up in the suburbs of Chicago and uh, went to university and then law school. And then I took the path that many take when they finish law school and don't wanna practice law. So I moved to DC and ended up working at the Department of Homeland Security. It had just been created in 2003. Mm. And you know the 22 agencies that were, were merged together under the department. And so I started at TSA doing uh, policy work ended up at the White House uh, focusing on transportation policy and then um, went into the private sector. I I did a brief stint with an ambassador. I worked um, for the ambassador of Finland and so I worked with Helsinki Helsinki for a bit. And then, you know, when she retired from the State Department, she asked me to work for her, which I did, which is how I ended up in Denver. Did a variety of things, um, and yes, this is the short story. Yes, of course. Right. Yes, I have the I have the long story sitting in front of me, and let me tell you, there is a lot of experience. But keep going. <laughs> I find that I have to uh, describe kind of how I got to each part because it's not yeah. necessarily intuitive, yeah. uh, somewhat unconventional, and not linear at all. But um, unless unless I explain it, so right. uh, ended up working for her. I did a couple of things. Um, in the private sector, went back to the administration, back to DHS, uh, was the deputy chief of staff there. Um, and then I um, ended up at HUD working for Dr. Carson. So, or um, Doc, as some people know him. <laughs> right, Doc. <laughs> right. Well, we had Dr. Carson on a few weeks ago, and he is a great man. But I think just through your experiences, there's a great lesson to learn that not everything is linear and that the connections you make in one place and the experiences you have will lead to others. So can you kind of speak to that? Something that you've learned at the beginning of your career that has kind of you didn't know at the time, but it's prepared you for what you're doing today. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, interesting, I think, looking back on my career and then realizing that some of the things that I did is really preparing me for what I'm what I'm doing now. Oh. And I think that one of the most important things, and I and I tell this to some of the people that I mentor through my um, old university and through law school, is that it's not linear. That um, you know, it's great to have a goal in mind and to have an idea of what 
um, what you want to do, what you want to focus on, but not everything. Don't take everything as a setback if you don't end up doing that right away. Yeah. Um, when I went to DSC originally, I, I never thought that I would uh, work in DHS. And, um, but, but it, it, would, it turned out to be a great opportunity. And then, you know, people ask, how did DHS lead you to HUD? Uh, but during my tenure there as deputy chief, we, you know, FEMA is part of DHS. Mm. We had an unprecedented year of hurricanes that year. And HUD does the long-term recovery for disasters. So I worked very closely with the HUD team, uh, you know, as kind of a conduit between FEMA and HUD, mm. which is how I got to know, um, you know, Dr. Carson and his team. And then they asked me to come work for them, which which I I did. It was it was not something that people, which I have to explain, you know, right. I, I, people don't necessarily understand that connection, but that's, that's the connection. So, yeah. so you end up working at HUD for Dr. Carson and then now you're working kind of with his private sector, uh, kind of is a nonprofit, uh, think tank that y'all are doing now. Can you kind of explain what you're doing now? Sure. It's the American Cornerstone Institute and we are a 501c3 nonprofit think tank. And as Doc likes to call it, we're we're not just a think tank; we're a do tank. That's so uh, <laughs> we, you know, we really believe that um, there's some space in in the policy world to really get the information out to not just within DC, but also out in the communities about why we should believe in some of these policies and and the kind of the underpinnings for them, so people really understand. Uh, why and what and how they should get involved. And, and so that's what we're doing at American Cornerstone. And I was um, very lucky because during my time in the private sector, I worked with a lot of uh, nonprofits and I did a lot of um, startup nonprofit work. And so when um, I was working at HUD, they, they knew that. And so, you know, I came on board because really to help them as a startup Mm. And right now I'm working on, um, I'm the director of policy and research. And so I'm looking at how, you know, our long-term goals for the organization, what are the things we should be focusing on? How do we disseminate that to um, people outside of DC, as well as work with policymakers to uh, provide them some, you know, some ideas on um, where we think things should be going. I love it. And I, obviously we, we talked to Dr. Carson, great man, great boss. And I love what you guys are doing and the mission uh, that you're on, but I want to kind of talk about some of the initiatives that y'all had at HUD. What are some of the things you're most proud of? What are some of the things you got done and how do they kind of carry over to what you're doing now in the private sector? Yeah, well, I think overall we, we had a, a philosophy at HUD that we really wanted to provide people who are low income, the most vulnerable in the community, pathways out of poverty and onto self-sufficiency. So that was really the undercurrent for a lot of our programs was really how do we give people a hand up and able to you know climb these ladders of opportunity. So we did things that um, you know one of the, the great things that I think we talk about a lot is the Foster Youth to Independence Initiative or the FYI, which really helps people um, who are aging out of foster care and we give them um, a voucher for housing, but we also uh, include support services. So really when you're transitioning out of foster care, usually you're 18, the program allows you to um, 
to, to utilize it if you're kind of four years out of foster care. But really you're, you know, you're young, maybe you're going to college, maybe not, but really housing is a stabilizing force. So if you have that, that housing, you could really go on to pursue your goals. And I think that that was such a great program. One of the greatest things about it was that, you know, Dr. Carson met with some foster youth um, and, and they told him what they needed. And so we put it into place, um, you know, just a few months later, which, you know, if you know the bureaucracy of the government, that's an amazing feat in of itself. Right. And it's really a successful program. So, um, so we're really proud of that. We did uh, another initiative called Envision Centers, which was um, taking the community and providing almost like a one-stop shop for people who in the community to go to for, for specific needs, whether it was, you know, help with housing, financial literacy, help with daycare. Um, we worked with nonprofits, we worked with um, you know, housing authorities and, and different organizations in the community that could provide that sort of, um, um, you know, these programs to individuals who, who live there. And it was really a one-stop shop, but not a one-size-fits-all. So it just depended on what the community needed. And I think that that was a really great thing because it was actually not funded by HUD. It was, you know, taking all of what was already happening and putting it together and then also including our federal partners in that. So, you know, HHS would come in if they had daycare help or, um, you know, other, other federal agencies, SBA would come in and provide kind of um, lessons or programs for people who wanted to start a small business. And so it was a really, I think, good initiative um, that's still around today. So you'll see a lot of Envision Centers in the community uh, something we're really proud of. And, and then the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll mention is just opportunity zones. Yes. I love them. Yeah. They, they're, we're, we're really starting to see the fruits of that. So yeah. um, now that was passed in the 2017 tax cuts and jobs act. Um, and Dr. Carson was the head of the council, which really brought together all the, again, all the federal agencies together to say, what can we provide to this tax incentive that will really help the community? And so um, as, as, you know, a regional administrator for HUD, I, you know, worked with all my federal partners to really get out into the community and talk how, talk about how, you know, the community can use these grants and these different programs from the federal government to, to basically um, help opportunity zones. And of course, that's a, there's a private sector component to that. So, you know, that was a really, I think, great initiative. And again, we're seeing such great outcomes of that of that and happening now. Hmm. Well, at DBU, Dallas Baptist is good friends with Scott Turner, if you know Scott, yeah. who is big in the Opportunity Zone. So we, we love that initiative and love that all of y'all are doing. But I want to point out something that you said at the beginning is that the mission of HUD really is to provide a pathway out of poverty and into self-sufficiency. Obviously, we know that self-sufficiency is the goal. And I think I can speak for my generation in saying that we just 
there's a longing to for the hurting people that we see people who are hurting we see p- people who are impoverishing in this in these housing or in in government housing we want to lift them out but i think a lot of people are stuck on the idea of handouts and if the government is giving things to people that that is the pathway out when in reality we want to bring people we want to give people opportunity like the opportunity zones and provide a pathway to self sufficiency so what is the best way to do that what did you do at hud what are you doing now to what is that pathway? What are we missing there? That That's a great question. I think um, there is a lot of answers. And I, I want to start by saying, you know, there's always going to be um, a need really for a safety net, right? So, yeah. so we shouldn't forget that a lot of the people that HUD helps are, are you know, disabled or, or seniors or people who are unable to work for whatever reason. And that's always, and that's, that's the mission and that's you know what government should be providing but 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 it should also be a safety net so meaning if you can um, provide for yourself then you should Mm -hmm. and so we um, always try to provide various opportunities for um, for people we were helping so to get out of out of poverty to so you're not stuck in this cycle of, of generational poverty and that's you know through education, it's through work programs, it's through financial literacy, and so really coupling the safety net programs with programs of opportunity and self sufficiency are how we would get out of that. And I think that that's a really important thing to remember. Um, a lot of our successful programs, like um, the family self sufficiency program, where you're in housing, subsidized housing, but if you enroll in the program. Um, part of your income goes to an escrow account. And when you graduate from that program, you have an escrow uh, that's a couple thousand um, dollars. And a lot of people have used that to put a down payment on a house, to um, to do other things for education that allows them to, to take advantage of those ladders of, of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I kind of want to let's pivot and talk about your story, if you don't mind. You mentioned this at the beginning. Something I didn't know is that you did you grew up in public housing. And, and so how does that in, influence the way that you see the issues and the way that you need to go about them? Because you said your your dad immigrated uh, from where? Where did he come from? Sure. My dad, my parents came from the Philippines. So, okay. That's um, so fun. Yeah. So what was that experience like for you? Well, I was born in Chicago, but my sister right. was born in the Philippines. And so, you know, I we were really young. And I think that it it has, um, you know, it has kind of colored my view of how to look at it. Because I do believe that, again, that there's going to be a safety net that we must provide for people who, who need help. And so, um, so I think that those programs, we should strengthen them, right? But utilize them correctly. And so these are the reasons why I think that the, the, the other things like education and um, you know work training and things like that should be available to people who are in subsidized housing so that you know, they get out of this generational poverty cycle rather than kind of stay in uh, government subsidized housing. There just isn't enough funding to continue to do that. Yeah, I uh, totally agree. I think one of my favorite Ronald Reagan quotes is he said, we can't help everyone, but everyone can help someone. And I think it's just that idea is that we need to be looking around and finding people to help and talking about what we spoke on before we press record is that public private partnership. I think that's what a lot of people are missing because 
the government is not necessarily on the ground floor with the people who need help the most as the people around them are or the private sector is. So what does that partnership look like? How can business leaders and the future leaders of business and government work together to solve some of these issues? Yeah, well, I'm, another great question, Zach. I, um, I think it's really important that we involve the private sector. We also um, involve the faith community a lot um, in helping people in their own community. And that's one of actually the pillars, um, the pillars or cornerstones of the American Cornerstone Institute is community. You know, and we've lost a lot of the community um, aspect in our society today. But, you know, we have to realize that this is actually what our, our nation was built on. Yeah. And so going back to the private sector, going back to the faith community, to people who are your neighbors, um, they're, they're, they're kind of best positioned to understand how um, somebody needs help in their community. But I think, you know, I just finished a fellowship with um, the Common Sense Institute here in Colorado, and we did a report on housing affordability. And what we focused on, rather than kind of the demand side of, of how to fix the problem of housing affordability, we looked at the supply chain and how do you fix the supply chain? So I'll, I'll just do a little plug for it. You know, the supply chain for housing development is the same if you're building affordable housing, if you're building market, if you're building workforce, if you're building luxury. So we really need to, when we fix the development chain and we, um, fix you know, entitlement processes, regulations, um, and kind of streamline these processes, which in turn turns into cost savings for the end user, which is the, you know, the, the uh, person who lives in that unit, then we're gonna really fix um, some of these cost issues. And that's gonna be for affordable and it's gonna be for market. Um, and so we really should look at that. Um, and that's part of the public-private, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, a public housing developer um, is the same as kind of, not is the same, but they follow the same uh, development chain as a market rate developer. And so I think we need to recognize that, that there are some things in the system that we can fix um, and that would help everybody in the community, not just kind of the, the people who need affordable housing or not just the people who are, you know, looking for market rate. So, um, you know, there's a lot of things and that's, you know, one of the things from opportunity zones that was a public-private partnership. You know, um, the private sector can utilize the tax cuts, but and the tax incentives. Uh, but we, as a federal government, had added a lot of the the public part of it. So whether you're using grants or different programs from any of the federal agencies that were involved, you could really um, start to revitalize these communities and like do it a lot faster than you normally would. Yeah, like you were talking about earlier is the bureaucracy and there's the the paper trail. It's so much easier in the private sector. And it is so true that a rising tide truly lifts all boats and that if we can help everyone, that everyone's life gets better, especially with the opportunity zones. And I think it's so important for that that housing side. But I'm just thinking about framing the issue because you have the left, you have the right. Everybody frames the other guy as the bad guy. And we just need to get to the point where there's an issue that needs to be solved and we can all come together on this. How, so how can we frame this issue to where it's not like we need to give the government all the money because they can save everyone, but it's also not we need to be funding the private sector, but it's but now it's their donors. We're, we're just funding our donors, but it's, it's not that. We're trying to help people. How do we frame this issue better? And how can, can you give us some practical advice on how to just talk about these issues? It is, um, 
I think one of the other things that we try to work on at American Cornerstone is just, you know, we've kind of lost the civility in our discourse. And, you know, we've become so polarized, just even, you know, that it's, it's no longer a DC swamp issue, but it is a, it's a main street Colorado issue where you can't talk to anybody anymore about different policies. And so, you know, everybody suffers in that situation because you're not getting to any solutions. And so, you know, one of my favorite economists is Thomas Sowell, and he says, there are no solutions, there's only trade-offs. Mm-hmm. And I think people need to recognize that. It takes a lot of, I think, leadership to, to be able to uh, get to a consensus, to make those trade-offs that you know will uh, benefit, you know, the American people at the end. And so we need to get out of our kind of our political silos, get back to talking, get back to talking to people who have different ideas and different viewpoints from you. And I would say, you know, especially talk to people who have different viewpoints than yourself, because you're going to learn something. And we need to stop talking um, to people as if they are, you know, you just need to talk to people one-on-one. I think one of the things also, um, one of my favorites is Arthur Brooks, and he talks about uh, how we have a society of contempt. And it's okay to kind of treat another individual with contempt because of maybe their political views or because they disagree with you on something else, particularly with social media. Um, but we have to get back to remembering that every human has dignity and treating everybody as such. And you may not agree on issues, but that doesn't make anybody a bad person. And until you can get to that point, you're not going to be able to get to the solution. Yeah. And so, again, I'll just plug my um, my fellowship report because at the Common Sense Institute, we the the fellowship I did, they actually took a conservative and they took a, a, a liberal and they put us together and they say, okay, we want you to solve the question, you know, this issue. Yeah. And that's actually a part of the fellowship is to have these differing views. And so, you know, we, we, that's how we attacked the challenge. We said, well, you know, I'm not going to come into this saying, I'm going to disagree with you, or I'm just going to debate you on all of these issues and somebody's going to win. We came in saying, we really need to find some solutions for Colorado. And how are we going to do that? And so, you know, we have the report out, but you know, what people didn't see in the background was that we talked a lot about some of these issues and and I had to give in on some things and he had yeah. to give in on some things. Trade-offs. And yeah, exactly. And so, you know, what we did was we came up with some tangible and actionable things for um, the state to work on, which we think would help solve the problem. Mm. And I think that that's kind of just a template for how we should go about these tough policy issues is that there's there there's there's going to be trade-offs and, yeah. and we all need to get on board with that. <laughs> Yeah, you sound like someone that has worked closely with Dr. Carson, that's for sure. But it's so true. We've lost the ability to talk and have just civil discourse where we're not yelling at each other, hiding behind a screen and just saying you're wrong because you're you're a bad person because I disagree with you. I think that's so wrong. But I would love for you to plug your fellowship report. Can we go read it? Can we go find it? Yeah, absolutely. It's at the uh, Common Sense Institute in, in um, Colorado. So you should find that. And it's it's a long title, so let me read it to you. It is okay. um, from Conflict to Compassion, a Colorado Housing Development Blueprint for Transformational Change. From Conflict coming? to Compassion. How do you get to that title? I love that. 
Well, so housing is so fraught with emotion because um, development in of itself is just change and people fear change. And so we were, um, and I'll, and my co-fellow is Peter Lafari. He was a, or he is a housing authority executive director here in Colorado. And um, we, we were really influenced by this journalist, uh, Amanda Ripley, who talks about high conflict. And, you know, when you get into these high conflict situations and you put people essentially in, in opposing buckets, you know, just what we were talking about, you're not going to find solutions. And so, you know, what we really wanted to do is recognize that change is, is emotional. Housing development is emotional for a lot of people, but there's a way to get beyond that. We need to have um, com compassion for our fellow Coloradoans and for fellow Americans who are having problems with housing affordability, whether it's homelessness or, 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 um, instability or, you know, or it's just, you know, somebody who graduated from college and can't afford to live in the community that they grew up in. There, there's a lot of, um, it, it ranges and it kind of touches everybody. And so we need to get to the, to the point where we understand and we recognize where all of these emotions are coming from before we can get beyond to actually solving the problem. So that's, that's <laughs> the and I think there's a lot of trade-offs in that too, because one side, a lot of times it's all statistics and facts and the other side is all emotions, but neither one of them is going to take you the full length of the field. You know, it, it is trade-offs of both. So how can we play those together? How do statistics play into emotions and vice versa? Yeah, it, I mean, it is. I think when you go to a normal community engagement about a particular development, you know, the people who show up are the ones who are really anti-development um, for any reason. It could, you know, uh, could be because of, of parking, because of, um, you know, density or, or whatever have you. There is some opposition to it. And then the only person who's really showing up to defend it, it would be the developer who, you know, who has a, who has a intrinsic, you know, kind of, um, um, you know, he's, he's, he's going to gain from this development going forward. Yeah. And so, you know, you set up already a high conflict environment, you can't get beyond that. And so I think what we need to realize is that, you know, people who are having opposition, there is, there is something that we should acknowledge that we need to be able to say, okay, you know, parking is an issue, density is an issue, but how do we get beyond it? And until you recognize that that is an issue, then, you know, then we're not going to be able to solve it. And I think, you know, one of the things we talk about in the report is that NIMBY and YIMBY are not great constructs for this, right? You're putting people in these buckets. And one of our premises is you could be a NIMBY one day and a YIMBY the other, it just is dependent. And so let's get beyond kind of categorizing people and talk about what are the actual issues, because if we can recognize that, then they're, they're actually solvable. Yeah, that's really good. And I think you have to always remember that you're dealing with human beings with specific and unique problems and, and personal issues. And you can never look past that only for statistics, but you also need that that partnership. And, and it's just so important to mend both of those. Um, yeah. But what's next for you? I have this question on here. I just know that the American Cornerstone Institute is not your last stop. I just I just know it. Are you running for something? What What's the future look like for you? 
Oh gosh, no, no, I'm not running for anything. Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> right now, at the moment, yeah. I am so um, blessed to be able to work for Dr. Carson in yeah. this capacity. I, um, I, I can't tell you how lucky I am to to be working on something that I believe in with people that I respect and admire, and who, um, you know, always act with integrity. And that is something that you know through my whole. Kind of career, I've been really lucky to work with some really great individuals, and they've really shaped how I look at the world, how I look at government, how I act in government. And I think that um, so so the American Cornerstone. I'm I've just we just started in February. I'm I'm having a great time, um, really kind of shaping the organization, yeah. working with with Doc. He is, as you know, an inspiration. And so I'm not, you know, I'm not really looking for anything else. I'm okay. I'm all right. I was just fishing yeah, for a long time. <laughs> That's great. I love what you guys are doing. Would you say that integrity is one of the biggest lessons you've learned from Dr. Carson? And are there any examples yeah. that come to mind? Well, I, you know, I would say that I worked with a lot of people who have integrity. And I will say that um, very early on in my career and, you know, and DC is kind of, you know, the shark tank um, and you find all kinds there. I think that, um, again, I was really lucky to work with people who act with integrity, particularly when you're doing policy work within DC, because there's always, there's always trade-offs. Mm-hmm. And so when you see the trade-offs, you want to be able to recognize that they're, they're being done for a reason rather than, you know, political, I think, um, I've always gotten involved in government because of policy, not politics. Yeah. And but you know, but in order to do policy, you have to, you know, you know, have to recognize that politics is at play. Right. And so, um, you know, some of those trade-offs I think are are important, um, and they're sometimes disappointing as a you know as a policy person. But as long as they're made with integrity behind them, I think you can get you know you can understand where that's coming from. And so I think that, um, you know, I I can't think of any particular example uh, with Doc, but, you know, he's he's just a man that, that integrity is part of his very fiber. And so, you know, everything he does, he does because um, he's trying to, he's, he's, he wants to do well and good. And, and I think that that's really important in our leaders. I think it's so reassuring for everyone listening to this, including myself, to hear someone say in the kind of age of disillusion that we're in, that there are people that are working, fighting for solutions, not just politics. And it goes much further because we're dealing with issues that affect people's lives. And so thank you for for all the work that you're doing and sharing with us. I do have one more question for you that we love asking everybody we talk to. Just what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? You look back on your career and with the resume, that is so amazing what advice would you give to that person? I would say, and it's something we talked about at the beginning, was just that um, don't be disheartened by non-linear moves mm. and to always, you know, I I said it's important for our leaders to have integrity, but I think it's important that you always have integrity with yourself as well. Um, mm. Because at the end of the day, you're going to have to live with yourself. And if you if you if you can't do that, then that's going to be really hard for your whole life. Yeah. And so, um, you know, my twenty year old self was probably 
could never kind of see myself in DC working at the White House and, you know, kind of traveling overseas. But I think that there are um, a lot of opportunities out there. And that, you know, one of the best things about, I think, um, my career is that, you know, I've worked for really great leaders who recognize kind of hard work. I wasn't, you know, I'm not always kind of like the one on top of everything, but I, you know, I felt like I always worked really hard to achieve things. And so um, having people that recognize that and and promote that and um, live that themselves is really important. And so, you know, while your career path may not be a straight line, you're going to get there if you continue to kind of focus on, you know, working hard and doing good. And then, um, you know, I think that you should never give up on yourself. Mm, I love it. Never be disheartened by nonlinear moves. Continue to work hard, pursue your goals and never give up on yourself. Evelyn, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. And uh, our, our thoughts and prayers are with you. Thanks so much, Zach.